The world is changing rapidly and schools must evolve to prepare young people to invent the future. That's where Professor Fernando Riemers comes in. Welcome to the EdCast and thanks for talking to us about global citizenship. Thank you, Matt. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Now, Professor Riemers, uh, you have a new book out and it's connected to global citizenship and the title of the book is called Empowering Global Citizens, A World Course. A World Course, what does that mean and where does this come from? Well, let me tell you about the history of that book. As you know, every year I bring together 100, 150 uh, teachers and school leaders to talk about global education to Harvard. And for a while I've been arguing that if we are serious about preparing students to understand globalization, we should treat these the way we treat any other subject on which we're serious, which is we should have high quality curriculum and it should be rigorous curriculum and it should provide extended opportunities for students to engage with this subject. So some years ago, a group of education leaders about to set up a global network of schools came to me and said, we want to take you at your word. Why don't you design that curriculum for us? And uh, I agreed with the understanding that at some point uh, we would share this curriculum with the world so that the, these would be useful to others and inspire them in any way they wished. A world course for the world. A world course for the world, exactly. So I invited um, uh, four colleagues who were then graduate students and we spent over a year designing a curriculum where we began imagining what were the competencies that high school graduates should have in order to understand globalization, the way in which it was shaping their lives, the way to care about some of the most important global challenges, and in order to develop the competencies to make a difference in improving the world. So the world course is the result of that collaboration. What we have now done in producing this book is written uh, a fairly extensive introduction that reviews the field of global citizenship education that articulates the design principles that we used in putting the curriculum together and that shares this interdisciplinary curriculum with anyone who wants to use that. And uh, we hope that what this will do is serve as a provocation that will, on the one hand, support those teachers and school leaders who are already interested in developing the global competencies of their students, and will also challenge those who are not doing enough of that to consider that maybe they, they should be doing more of it. I think some of our listeners might be interested in what, what is part of the world course and part of this curriculum, maybe just a sample lesson plan or an example, a slice of life of someone who is part of the world course curriculum and what they would talk about. Yeah, I mean, this, this curriculum is designed to help students understand the very many dimensions of difference which make us human and to appreciate those differences, to see them as opportunities for collaboration, for creativity, for innovation. and. It's a curriculum that, it, that has a heavy uh, bent towards student agency and developing the capacity of students to not only understand the world, but develop the capacity to influence the world. And so an example of that, in every, in every year, there is a theme that provides coherence to this curriculum. And this year ends with some kind of a capstone project, beginning with kindergarten and ending with high school. So at the kindergarten level, uh, students have to produce a puppet show at the end of kindergarten that shows that they understand difference and they see difference as a source of beauty, as a source of possibilities. Um, at uh, a later grade, students have to design a business plan to create a company that will manufacture chocolate. In the second grade, students have to engage in some way in supporting the education of other students around the world. The curriculum is full 
with suggested activities that, pro that create opportunities for students to engage with peers around the world in engaging with complex issues, but also making a difference at their level on those, on those issues. Yeah, I think that, you know, the notion that it's never too young to start this kind of curriculum is, is true. And just the fact that the world is so shrunk and so smaller, being able to not just learn about global citizenship within your community, but know that your community is the world. Uh, very interesting point. I, I think, Fernando, what I'm really impressed about this book, aside from the writing, is the way in which you're sharing this book. It's uh, a Creative Commons license. Share a little bit more about why, why you're trying to get the book uh, out there in this unique way. So as you know, Creative Commons is a product of a number of people who have been thinking about how it is that we can use idea to stimulate creativity and, and change, essentially, social change. So it's, um, it's the least restrictive way to share uh, intellectual property in a way that allows others to build on that. So the users of this book will be able to develop their, to use any part of this book in any way they wish and they don't need to give anybody notice. They should cite it using a creative li a license attribution, but they can build on it, they can remix it, they can create their own derivatives of this work. They can do anything they wish uh, with this uh, product. And it's done that way because our view is that advancing effective global education is gonna require the engagement and the collaboration of many teachers around the world and other educators who will together build the body of knowledge that can support this practice, codify their own practice, collaborate in building tools that can support more effective practice in global education. So we thought it was just fitting that we use a kind of license that would be aligned with that kind of vision of, of how do we allow the opportunity for some collective intelligence, if you will, and the around global ed. And the title backs it up to empowering global citizens by making it very democratic and very accessible. And very accessible. You have a, a new book called Learning for the 21st Century. You have a new book on education in Singapore uh, called 15 Letters uh, from Singapore. How do they all connect? Connect the dots of, of these three books and, and why this is on your mind and why you're putting the time and effort into sharing all these thoughts. Well, let me first say I have not written these books alone. These All these books are the result of collaborative work of phenomenal teams, uh, many of which overlap in all these different projects because these are colleagues that I have uh, come to know over the course of the years and identified that we share common interests, which is why we have collaborated in that way. So certainly advancing global competency, global education in schools is gonna require not only high quality and rigorous curriculum of the sort that we propose in empowering global citizens, but it's going to require massive efforts in building the capacities of teachers and school leaders, both to themselves be globally aware and globally competent, but also have the capacity to teach effectively global education. And I think one of the ways to do that is to um, provide educators with opportunities to learn from the educational experiences of other countries and regions. Comparative education is a great source of professional development to build the capacity of people who do global education. So the book that you mentioned, 15 Letters on Singapore, is the product of one such effort. Uh, last fall, a group of colleagues from Massachusetts uh, went together to Singapore to study essentially what were some of the reasons that nation seemed to be doing so well supporting their teachers uh, in ways that allow those teachers to reflect the very ambitious vision uh, for education, which includes 
uh, very centrally the development of ethical capacities of their students and the development of global awareness and global competency for their students. So we spent a week in Singapore, thanks to the hospitality of colleagues in the National Institute of Education of Singapore, and we, we were just in awe at how much that nation, which began 50 years ago, it's a very young nation, as, as our listeners probably know, it's a nation that 50 years ago uh, was essentially a swamp with a lot of malaria and a lot of people who were not very well educated and without any natural resources. And this nation concluded that in order to survive, they would have to invest in human capital. They would have to invest in providing people opportunities to develop their talent. And they went about it very methodically. They set uh, achievable, ambitious but achievable goals that define essentially four eras in the history of education in that country. Initially they said, let's get everyone to school. Then they said, let's make sure everybody finishes high school. Then they said, let's make sure they learn how to think uh, in school and develop the capacity to use what they know to solve problems. And more recently, about seven years ago, they said, let's develop a broad range of competencies that include cognition, but also relationship competencies, uh, character, and things like innovation and creativity. And so that's the phase they are in at the moment. So we went to see what were they doing that reflected those aspirations. And we were very impressed uh, by, by their apparent success in, in supporting their teachers to build those competencies. So as we were finishing the trip, we said, so how do we help our colleagues in Massachusetts learn what we learn? And um, I reminded our colleagues that when public education started in America, John Quincy Adams, who was the son of the first, uh, of, of one of the earlier presidents, who was the sixth president, was ambassador in the nation of Silesia, eventually Prussia, Germany. And while he was posted there, he wrote these letters back to his friends in the Commonwealth that eventually he published uh, in a little book called Letters on Silesia, which were basically his observations of first public local education systems. And that inspired the imagination of people in the Commonwealth as to what a public education system could look like. So I told him that story and said, why don't we write our letters on Singapore? And so then invited one of my graduate students, Nell O'Donnell, and together we basically put this collation together. And we did more than put this collation of letters together. We convened this group back a few times and we said, do we have a message for institutions that collaborate in teacher preparation here, for uh, schools of education, for, for district leaders, for um, policy makers, and so on? And, and we did. We said, let's provoke them. Let's uh, articulate what we think Massachusetts could learn from what we have seen in Singapore. So we published that book also using a Creative Commons license because our goal is that this provocation will enable a lot of education dialogue, a lot of social dialogue in the state that might eventually lead to greater, more effective collaboration across institutions, say across schools of education and district leaders. Our view in that group is that the kind of change that is necessary in education to produce the teaching force that Singapore has requires a lot of collective action, a lot of collaboration among different institutions. No one has sole authority to rule that kind of collaboration. And so you can only do that through dialogue, persuasion, invitation, 
And our goal with that book is to invite that kind of collaboration. We hope that others will build on that. And Fernando, here at Harvard, you are one of the sort of masters of collaboration and convening folks here. And, and your work in the Global Education Innovation Initiative uh, does that. It very much convenes and allows folks to collaborate. Share a little bit more about what that initiative is doing and, and how your work is sort of tied in with that as well. Sure, Matt. I'm very, very grateful to the colleagues in the Global Education Innovation Initiative that collaborate in doing that work. Our ambition is to advance the conversation about what it is that public education systems should do to empower students with the skills they need to invent the future in the 21st century. And we're going about it uh, with three kinds of activities. First activity is research. And so what that means is we have built a consortium with partners uh, at present in China, Singapore, India, Colombia, Brazil, Chile, Mexico, and the United States. But this is an evolving consortium. It, we hope that it will grow to include more countries and regions of the world. And together, what we have done in our first book, which um, is out as of last May, titled um, Teaching and Learning for the 21st Century, is to synthesize existing research on what are the capacities that we know matter to people to live a good life, basically. And we've used that taxonomy to examine existing curriculum frameworks in only six of the countries that I mentioned, those that were part of the initiative from the get-go, which are Chile, India, Singapore, China, Mexico, and the United States. And we have written case studies that document how come those goals of education got to be what they are. What was the process? What was the political economy that explained that? And so that book was published by Harvard Education Press. We are now, or colleagues are now, in the process of translating that book uh, into Chinese, uh, Spanish, and Portuguese. And within the next few months, that book will be available in those languages as well. Our hope is that these ideas will advance a conversation about how do we make sure that students learn what they need to be fully human in school, that they develop the full range of competencies that allow them to have an ethical compass, the capacity to collaborate with others, the capacity to govern themselves, to set personal goals, to persevere, as well as the knowledge and the cognitive skills to be able to solve the problems that they will encounter in their lives. So that's it on the research, on the research side. And this is, as I mentioned, collaborative work. This book was written by colleagues in all these countries. And here at uh, Harvard, my colleague Connie Chung and myself edited that, that book. The second set of activities we are, um, we are organizing are essentially convenings, um, bringing together people to have these conversations for, for the very same reasons I mentioned when I talked about um, the effort in Singapore. We are convinced that change only happens as a result of the collaboration of many different people. And part of what universities can do is use its, their convening authority to bring people together. And I have the sense that in education, we need to exercise that muscle a lot more, the muscle of helping us find common ground with others who may, on the surface, appear to be different. I think that if we spend more time looking for common ground and for the opportunities to build alliances as opposed to uh, spend excessive amount of time looking at uh, differences and what differentiates ourselves, we might make more progress in, in producing the kind of collective action that we need to transform education for the, uh, for the benefit of the students. And the third set of activities that we are um, 
interested in advancing in the initiative, we haven't done very many of them, is to figure out how can we take the knowledge generated in the research out of the convenings and turn that into products which can achieve some scale for the benefit of teacher preparation, school leadership preparation, and so on. We're in the process of exploring with some partners the development of some um, professional development programs along those lines, but those are not yet ready for prime time. Fernando, I, I think uh, you were one of the original 10 EdCasts when we started about six years ago, so we're episode 200 plus right now. And I remember that EdCast was be about uh, how to raise global citizens and how to be a global citizen. And, you know, six years later, I, I am curious, with education as the intervention of being, um, making the world a better uh, place for global citizens. Are, are you heartened by the progress that we've had, especially sitting here in this room in the context of the world, knowing that so much of the work that you do, both research and practice, is based on, in many ways, a theme of peace, uh, that global citizens can make a peaceful, a more peaceful, just, humane world. And here we are sitting thinking, well, is it a peaceful world? Is it a better world? Just, I'm curious, your final thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so the first thing I should say is congratulations. It's amazing to see how much you have done in those six years uh, with these programs as a way to advance a global conversation We've about got what great, does it mean to advance education. We have great guests. Uh, well, thank you. Um, yes, uh, it's interesting that we've come full circle uh, in six years. I am heartened by a number of, uh, of facts, which I'm going to describe in a moment, but also feel... Um, a renewed urgency to advance global citizenship education, which is the motivator to release this book right now. See, I think we, to some extent, the world has made great progress in educating all children as a result of a global collaboration that begins when the right to education is included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights seven decades ago. So that gives me great hope to see that in seven decades, we collectively transform the experience of humanity to one where most kids spend a significant portion of their lives in school. But here's the paradox. At the same time that we're doing that, there is no question that globalization is bringing all of us into contact with people who are different than we are across multiple dimensions. And you would think this is a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to have more creativity, for us to collaborate. But I have the sense that there is at least a segment of the population in the United States and around the world that is uneasy with this coming into contact with the products of, collaboration, of, of globalization, whether it is uh, coming into contact with people across lines of race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, um, or whether it is coming into contact with one of the byproducts of the dislocations caused by globalization, such as refugees, for example. And so the question is, why this paradox? Why at the time when humanity is more educated than it has ever been in history, we do see that there are these fears, these hunkering down in the face of coming together with diversity, fears that are often exploited in terrible ways by politicians that seem to try to capitalize on them and exacerbate them. So it is that paradox that fuels the urgency on my part to say, well, we can certainly create the conditions for students to develop the capacity to see this difference as as a source of 
finding the common humanity we have with others and as a source to be able to achieve things we would not be able to achieve if we remained tribal within the groups that have the dimensions of what we define as our identity. So that is the reason for urgency. The reason for hope is that the governments of the world last September at the UN agreed on an incredibly hopeful vision for the world. And they articulated that vision in 17 simple goals called the Sustainable Development Goals. I urge all of our listeners to go online and look at the Sustainable Goals and read them. Because what they paint is a vision of a world that is inclusive, that has less poverty, that has less inequality, that has more health, that has more equal opportunities for women and men, that has more sustainable relationships with the environment. It is a better world. It is a world in which we can have peace. Do we have that world today? No. That's why the vision is important. Can we get there? Absolutely. I think we can get there. If we reflect on how much was achieved in terms of educating people in seven decades out of the, as a result of the fact of including that goal, imagine what we could achieve. But we will only achieve that if we align our education systems, our schools, with that vision if we become intentional in helping students develop the capacities to improve the world in line with a world that is more humane, that is more just, that is more inclusive. And that is our invitation in this book, Empowering Global Citizens, that we should all together as educators make it our business to prepare our students to improve the world. I invite all of our listeners to join this call, this charge from Professor Reimers to make the world a better place, to learn to change the world as we say here at the Ed School. Buying, getting in touch, sharing, empowering global citizens, a world course. Check out all the other books Fernando's also talked about. Fernando, you remind me of a line from the musical Hamilton. They talk about him. Why is it that you write like you're running out of time? And in many ways, the world feels like it's running out of time, and we're lucky that you're writing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.